Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. Every week, we talk fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making things happen in the industry. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and on today's episode, I sit down with Chris Basola, founder and CEO of Need Supply, the cult favorite retailer. I brought Chris in to talk about the competition he's feeling with other multi-brand retailers, how he's building a global brand out of Richmond, Virginia, and how Need Supplies remained so true to its cool, clean aesthetic. That's up next. Hey, Chris, welcome. Hi, Jill. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So you just flew in. You're I just landed. Yes, you're not based in New York. Talk to me. You're based in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia. This is a budding fashion capital, or so I hear. Talk to me about starting a company there. We'll just start from the from the very beginning. From the very beginning. So I've been based in, uh, we've been based in Richmond since 1996. So almost, I guess, 23, almost 24 years we're coming up on now. So... That's um, amazing. Yeah, our 25th anniversary is 2021. Will there be a big celebration? All year. <gasps> Collaboration? I think, I think 25 exclusives. is a big deal. 25 years is a big deal in our industry. It's a very big deal. Yeah, will it be? You'll, we'll just wait and see. Okay, yeah, event be exclusives across the board. 25 podcasts that year. <laughs> Come to us where it's at. Well, that's what I meant. Here, 25 yeah. podcasts. <laughs> I wish. Oh my gosh. So 1996. Totally so, different world. To, yes, totally different world. There was no, there was, inter, there was no internet really, unless you were at a, working at a college campus. Yes. And we started with vintage Levi's, three hundred pairs, um, and we named the store. It was a fantastic name. It was called Blues Recycled Clothing. Brilliant. Very creative for a, a vintage Levi's store. And uh, we were in two hundred square feet and had a lot of success in Richmond because that was that. I don't know if you remember that period of time when vintage Levi's were the, all the rage. I think um, they're still the rage. I think they're they're. I think they're coming back. Or maybe as the like rage. redone Levi's. Yeah. Yeah. So, definitely. but you were from a finance background. Is that's that- right. I was actually a trader on the Nasdaq for a whole two months. <laughs> so <laughs> you uh, had to get out. I had to get out. I didn't really. I didn't like it. Yeah. So. So what was the opportunity? Were you always in fashion? Did you just? Uh, saw that Richmond was lacking in fashion. What what was the opportunity you saw? I was not always in fashion. Um, I was always an entrepreneur, and I had um, spent some time in San Diego that summer with my wife and had seen a lot of the vintage Levi stores in that area and thought there was a need for it in Richmond. Yep. So I came back and didn't have a job, and my wife was in law school, so I thought, hey, I'll open up a vintage Levi store. Perfect. So, And then from there... It was successful. You started adding to yeah, the from, mix. From the day one, it was super successful. There were never any issues Stop. or problems. <laughs> <laughs> what do you even do to get out of something off the ground like that? What were you doing to market? How were you getting the word out? So we we sent out a press release and all three, because this was back in the day when there were only three TV stations. So all three TV stations came because they couldn't believe that we were selling vintage Levi's, used Levi's for $35. Oh, nice. Um, Do they think that was outrageous? I thought it was crazy. And fancy pants. Fancy. They didn't understand the whole idea of it. So, uh, 
but that clearly got us a lot of press in Richmond, and yep. um, the store took off, and we decided to add um, more vintage clothing, and then also uh, we started to add uh, third-party vendors, um, and really the focus was on bringing things to Richmond that weren't available there. So yes. uh, that was, like I said before, before the internet, so what you could buy was what was in your town, um, and so we really became a place of discovery. Yeah, and uh, had a lot of fun bringing those brands and those styles and things like that to the market in Richmond. And then the internet happened. And then the internet <laughs> changed happened. everything. Yeah, about eleven years ago, um, and we went online. First of all, we created a site, a branding site that we couldn't sell product. We didn't sell product on. Okay. Um, and the idea was that vendors would not come to Richmond because they just didn't, and they didn't know who we were. So we created a site that would allow us to have a presence outside of Richmond, and uh, it was successful enough that we decided to sell, uh, turn it into an e-com site. Okay. And it so, was editorial. It was what was happening was, on that it, site. Really, it was um, it was a video site. Uh, my partner at the time, Gabe, his background was interactive web design, okay. and we got in the back. I got in the back of my car. And we drove down the neighborhood where the store is and filmed it. <laughs> and so it was a video site, which was kind of something new at the time. And then he filmed um, all of our employees awkwardly um, just standing there <laughs> <laughs> one at a time. So, but it really intrigued like people. It was very himself. intriguing. It was because his point of view was that uh, the employees was what made the store. And so he just filmed them standing against the door. Awkwardly, no, no, there was no sound or anything, and that was just a loop that went through the site. So. I feel like he's so ahead of his time. Now everybody he, he, wants to know who's behind the brand. He he is, and he was, and he's a, he's a genius. So nice. What was happening in Richmond? Did they, were there department stores? Were there? What was so there was. I just <laughs> I just went to the mall that was there at the time, and I told my son um, this was the this is the old mall because everybody every town has an old mall, right? Oh, definitely. And they're tearing it apart and making it into a center city kind of thing. So. Um, but there were no malls, really, except this one mall that had um, a J.C. Penney's and maybe a yeah, Dillard's Sears. or something like Sears, for sure. There was a Sears there. Um, but right before we went online, they opened two malls at the same time, the same month in the fall. I think it was August or September that we had a hurricane come through and knock out all of our power for two months. Oh, geez. So that was a great, crazy, Good timing. crazy two months. <laughs> Let's find another outlet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that changed the dynamic of it because all of these national stores came into the city and suddenly you had, we had a Nordstrom. So a lot of the brands that we had introduced to Richmond were now available in multiple places. So, okay. and it was, I think it was about the same time that we went online, you know, suddenly when you go online, you're visible to the whole world, right? So, uh, we really had to push the bounds a little bit, the boundaries a little bit about what we carried, uh, and really push to find brands that uh, would be considered discovery brands that weren't available at the, at the malls at the time. So yes. it was good for us. And, and it was good that it happened at the same time that we went online because we need to do that for both reasons. Yeah. How would you describe your kind of edit or your curation? People don't like that word. I don't mind it. But um, how that's maybe evolved from from the time that you went online from the, the beginning. I always think of it as like there's definitely this need supply aesthetic and it's kind of minimalist, which is, again, I feel like there may be copycats. Everybody's kind of going this route. But how do you describe it? 
I think one of the things that made our our, our our sort of point our point of view different maybe than other sites at the time or stores at the time was that we came up in Richmond, right? So we had to we, we, we went to all the markets in New York and Europe and California. Um, but we had to buy and we always considered ourselves somewhat forward, but we had to buy in a way that uh, resonated with the the Richmond market, which is more of a, a mid-tier city, right, mm-hmm. rather than New York or L.A. Um, so I think when we went online, that made our assortment or our curation more accessible to more people, which is why we had success pretty quickly online. And so, yes, our, our, our assortment is – our curation, our point of view is very clean. Um, we try to keep things very simple. Uh, we try to create beautiful photography. Um, we try to make things and keep things playful, so not have sort of a um, that a vibe of maybe a more forward boutique might have, right? So that it's yeah. accessible. Anybody's welcome there. We don't take ourselves too serious, and I think that resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. So, what were you doing to to kind of launch the the website? Were uh, traditional media is that what you were using to get the word out? What Facebook and Instagram advertising wasn't. I don't think Instagram existed. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. Facebook was kind of a thing. So we did a little bit of Facebook. What was, what was it? MySpace was a thing? Is that, a, that oh, that's, a, that's the right were name, Were you advertising right? on MySpace? We were engaging on MySpace, okay. I would say. Um, and like building, I don't even remember what we were doing do on build, MySpace. But do you we build were, a group? Do you build, what do you I do on re- MySpace? I, I don't remember. I think you just connect with people and then tell them stuff. Okay. So you're like, look at us. Yes. And that's kind of what we... That's, Really, what we were doing on Facebook, because Facebook, I don't really think, had a robust advertising platform at the time. So it was more about having a lot of people follow you and then using it to um, invite um, people to invent to events and to share new product that you had uh, come into the store, things like that. So yeah, and Instagram, I don't think I think that was like a like a bar app at the time, right? Whatever it was called. Yeah. So were the brands also kind of working to market market the store, say um, you're on their stockist or were they were you? No, it was early days. Right. So a lot of what we did was um, all of us, we would get product. We would be excited about it and we would just email people in the industry in, in um, like the guys at Selectism or. I would email Lauren Sherman at Lucky on a Saturday morning and say, hey, we just got these shoes in. What do you think? And then they would post it for their readers and it would draw traffic. And slowly we built relationships with that whole um, sort of industry. Nice. uh, So uh, that's really how we got attention. Yeah, let's fast forward a little bit because now there are so many multi-brand retailers out there. Everyone, I would think it's less and less every day. It seems. (laughs) Yes, Yes. I think that. Well, yes. Talk to me. (laughs) Are people dropping like flies? (laughs) What does that say? Why are people falling off? Um, gosh, that's a big question. Um, well, I, I first of all, I think it's a myth that we don't need third-party retailers, right? I think. Direct-to-consumer is somewhat overrated. It's the thing right now that everybody's talking about. But in reality, I think consumers appreciate a third-party experience because it puts each of the brands in context. And when you go into a store that's just a certain brand, it's not as in-depth of an experience as when you go to a, a retailer that has multiple brands and has curated them in a way that is specific to that retailer's point of view. 
Right. Discovery, discovery. And I think what we're seeing, it is more difficult in today's environment as a third-party retailer. I think the ones that are struggling um, have lost their point of view and they have lost what made them special. And so then they're just a big place with a lot of product. Mm -hmm. And then I think you hit a wall with because you go from one you go from one extreme which is a direct to consumer which is like I'm going to go to this site and buy my toothbrush to um, a department store that has 600,000 SKUs right and I don't think any of those makes really a lot of sense for shopping yeah I don't have time to go to a single site to buy a toothbrush <laughs> <laughs> who does but so your thing no offense to the toothbrush DTC guys I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> so your thing is you are curating this assortment for this shopper. Like the shopper knows whoever is in your world, who I want to hear who you think your customer is, that they can come to Need Supply, discover new brands, discover new things. They'll have a variety to look at. They're not going to be bored. Correct. Who is your shopper? Who is our shopper? Well, so we have two brands that are part of NSTO. We have Need Supply Company. Yes. And then we have Totokayo. Yes, which I got to dig into because I feel like Need Supply is more well-known, I don't know, in the States or I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm out of the loop, but talk to me. Oh, I think, um, I think Need Supply has a broader audience. Mm -hmm. um, Totokayo has a, a, a great retail store in Soho down on Crosby Street. Yep. Uh, has a beautiful store in Seattle. That's where it started. Um, and Totokayo is... Um, a more of a luxury retailer, yeah. so young luxury. So, th so we, they're both similar in a way that they're both uh, have a very, very strong point of very strong point of view. They both started as brick and mortar retailers, yes. so they understand how to work with consumers. Uh, they understand how to build community. They actually have stores that were there first, uh, and they both went into digital, um, not natively, but really d took a digital-first approach early. when they went online, very yep. early and very aggressive about it as far as relative to other boutiques or, um, you know, brick-and-mortar retailers. Yes. Um, they both, although they're at somewhat, dif somewhat different tiers, um, they both did a mix. Both brands mix, have sort of a high and low mix. So um, whereas some of the brands that may be entry brands for um, Totokayo are... Yeah more at the top end at Need Supply. Got it. Um, and so that is the reason we were attracted to Totokayo and the reason we acquired Totokayo because it felt very familiar. We really um, appreciated what they were doing and it felt like a good fit. Got it. So you acquired the brand. Yes. And you, because I was originally thinking, did it originally start where you were just maybe sharing back-end resources or you had the, yeah, same, there's, it, the same investor? I was trying to keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> I... <laughs> I'll get crazy. So, so yeah, so we took on um, growth capital from Cormac Capital Corporation, which is the company that owns Herschel. Yep. Um, and of backpack fame. Of backpack fame, right? You can't can't walk on the street in New York or Brooklyn and not see or anywhere really and see. Them. I've stopped snapping pictures and sending it to the guys because it's kind of <laughs> you're they, killing they us, man. <laughs> <laughs> so then, after about a year and a half of working with those guys. Um, Totokayo, there was an opportunity for us to acquire Totokayo, and initially they acquired the company and tasked us with running it. Um, and what we did over a year or two was create what we call a common platform. So we have uh, essentially all of our back office functions, distribution, uh, the photography studio, accounting, all that customer service is all based in Richmond and supports both companies. 
And then in New York here, we have the creative teams, merchandising team, product development. Um, and then on the front end, we keep both brands very separate, but we have the back end to support both at a, at, a, at, a, at a bigger scale than maybe we would have been able to with just one of the brands. Yes. And everything's happening. Is everything happening in your fulfillment center in Virginia? It is. Okay. Everything, all the product is shipped there yep. and then distributed to either consumers or to one of the stores. Got it. Shipping internationally. Absolutely. Got it. Amazing. Makes sense. So storefronts, you have a, Need Supply has a store in Virginia. Correct. Is that the That's our flagship. Store? That's that our flagship. The and one only, and only. One and only flagship store, aside from a partnership we have in Japan and Tokyo. Got it. And Todokayo has Seattle, New York. And that's it. And that's it. For now. Wonderful. So is there overlap in, in product in in terms of the brand you car- brands you carry or completely separate? There's over there's there's overlap. There's yeah. probably about twenty percent overlap. Okay. That makes sense. So. And you've got your own private label for need supply. We have several private brands. So we yes. have um, Need. Yes. Which is our flagship um, brand for Need Supply Company. Yep. And then at Need we also have Stellan, Pharaoh, and Which We Want, which yes. are our in-house brands. And then at Totokayo we have um, Viden, and then we have Totokayo Archive, which we launched earlier this year. We'll be right back after this message. Okay, let's dig into that private label strategy sure. just a bit. Um, so when did these come about, and is it all about kind of filling holes in, in your inventory, or um, I w- assuming they're data-driven and driven by what the customer's seeking and looking for, maybe searching for? Talk to me. So our NSTO brand strategy is there to create... Um, essentially, so we're out, we're out at market, uh, we're all over the world, you know, Paris, Milan, London, New York, um, LA, Tokyo, Korea, with our merchandising team. So we know the market pretty well, we know what our consumer wants, um, and we have a very strong point of view of both brands. So for us, it makes sense to create things that we think, it's not necessarily things that we think are missing in the market, but creating um, that core product that is truly need supply or truly Totokayo. Yes. And it's important. It helps us um, It helps us establish a stronger point of view. It helps us um, offer exclusive product. It offers, it allows us to offer sometimes better product. Um, so there's lots of reasons for us that it makes sense. Got it. And are you selling through wholesale partners as well? We are not. Got it. I mean, I've had people come into the store in Richmond um, and say, wow, I'm from New York, and I didn't realize you guys had a store here in Richmond. <laughs> <laughs> We're only in Richmond. Yeah, right? So, Or, um, hey, I'm trying to do a return, and I can't find your store in West Broadway or something crazy like that, right? Yeah. So, What's happening? So why just Richmond? Have you explored? Have you done a pop-up in New York? Have you explored maybe opening here or another market? Yes. What's What's the word? We will be doing some more physical activations over the next couple of years. Okay. It's time. Yes. Brick and mortar is back, I think. <laughs> Wait and see. So- <laughs> no, I mean it. I, I really do. I think brick and mortar, when done right, is having a moment, at least for us right now. So Yeah, definitely. I, that, that sounds crazy to say that, but I think it's been written off too early. Yeah. I mean, for an example, we launched an application at the store for Totokayo in Soho and in Seattle. And the goal was to uh, service our online consumers with the expertise of our stylists in the store. Okay. And what happened was, in a lot of cases, the consumers, the customers, 
ended up coming into the store where they never they'd never been in the store, but they'd be in New York and they came in the store to meet the stylist they had been engaging with because they want to engage with a person and they want to engage in a in a physical environment. Yeah. That makes sense. So what's happening in store? They can there's the stylist opportunity happening. Um, you're doing events. Like what what's the role of the store right now? Experience. Yeah. Community. Um, so we do we do a ton of events, our activations. Um, what are we talking? Like once a week? Uh, I would say probably once a month. Okay. Once a month. Yep. I mean, I think of brick and I, I like to think of a brick and mortar store is a kind of place that when you have brunch with your friends, you want to stop by on the way home or afterwards, right? Yeah. And if it's not that kind of place, it's not working because if I'm not gonna if if I don't want to do that, then I'm just gonna go order it online. Yes. Right. True. So it has to be an experience, something fun. Um. So that's what we try to create at, at our spaces, and is I think we've been successful with that. Yeah. Is the event typically something that you do with a brand? Maybe it has to do with a launch. Sometimes it's a brand. Um, we've done, uh, we, we've done all kinds of events. We did, um, we had, uh, we, we gave the whole front of the store to the Namaguchi Museum and they filled it with all of the lamps. And then we had the, it's not the right title, but the director of the museum come in and, and give a talk about Namaguchi. And so cool. we do a lot of cultural events like that that yep. aren't related, that aren't there to sell, so to speak. So, uh, we've done some some talks at Soho House, where we so it's not necessarily in our space, but uh, yeah. in, a, in with the community in a physical environment. Cool. Uh, we did some things for the New York Marathon, which we'll do again this year. We had some meditation rooms and um, some other things involved with high fashion and running the marathon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you made it work. I don't understand. <laughs> It worked well enough. We're going to do it again. So what is that? Wait, talk to me. What do you mean? (laughs) Chris? Well, we did. We did. We partnered with some of our more active brands. Okay. And um, had some, I think, uh, technical gear there, like sunglasses and things like that. And uh, we did some, uh, we had some meditation tents. We had some uh, food for runners and water for runners, things like that. Cool. That's interesting. So you're doing... Events it was in one of those, you know, those little stations that you stop where people just throw the cups at you. This was a way nicer experience than that. <laughs> Thank goodness. So, gosh, it's kind of tied to content, kind of um, your events that you're doing. I feel like online, you've done you've done quite the array. I think at one point you had a print publication as we well. We did. Yeah, talk about your content team. That's all happening in house, I would assume. It is, and it's um, it's the content team is really the create it's the creative team, right? Yep. So, um, it's all done in house. It's all uh, based on content around culture and events and things that inspire or interest our team and also our customer base. Yep. Um, we are going to relaunch the magazine. Oh, great! Uh, th- th- later this year, so I'm excited about that. Same, same title, same. It setup. is not going to be the same title, so we are deciding what it is going to be. Okay. Stay tuned. Yes. But. That was all done internally, and the team, it's a lot of effort, but they really enjoy it because it's something outside of uh, the day-to-day yes. um, e-commerce production type of work, and it's uh, exciting and creative, and there's travel involved, so I think everybody enjoys doing it. Yes. What's the idea for the new publication? Will that be something that is kind of sold as outside of just through your customers, let be specifically for your customers as kind of a mailer, or is it more special than that? It'll, it'll, it will be more special than that, Jill. <laughs> We're not just throwing something out there. No, we'll do, 
Well, we, we plan to do a, 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 a periodical like we did before. Yeah. The only thing that's changing is the name, but the idea and the concept behind it will be very similar. So we'll feature some of our brands. We'll feature artists that, that we're excited about, that our customers are excited about, restaurants, places to travel to, things cool. like that. That makes sense. So I don't know I- if we'll do the... Um, I don't know if we'll feature what the one issue we did that we did a whole section on um what's that what's in prison when you stab somebody? What's that <laughs> called? Excuse <laughs> what are those what are those weapons called? A shank. Yeah, we did a whole we did a whole article on shanks. <laughs> and then we but the problem was we couldn't sell them online. And and the title was, you know, like Shanks is art or something like that. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> For when you're in prison, here's your guide. <laughs> Yeah, we did. We did some fun stuff. Oh my gosh! So, what are you? What are you concentrating on in content? So, you are you kind of like reusing, um, re kind of cutting things down, using it across channels. What's happening? And is email a big focus for you? Yes, I mean email is a big channel for any retailer online. Is so, it driving yeah. sales? Yeah, it is. It's still. It still. It keeps our customer engaged. Um, I think. The trick is to not use email in a way that uh, doesn't provide value, right? So what are you sending to people that is int- can be of interest to them and, and add value, right? So whether it's beautiful photography or introducing a new brand or introducing a new season or introducing a new artist or restaurant or a cool place to travel to, it needs to be a value. Yes, for sure. What percentage of sales? <laughs> What percentage of sales? Cut um, to the chase. I don't know. Yeah. But a significant? It's a good chunk. Yeah. Okay. It's a good chunk. Got it. What else is driving sales? Um, what else is driving sales? So uh, brick and mortar. Yep. It's very good. What is, percentage is brick and mortar? Less than half. Okay. Yeah. Pretty great. It's for less your than one. less than half. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good it's a good amount. Okay. Uh, uh, Total Kayo in particular. Um, has fairly large stores yeah. and are, it, it is in bigger markets than, than uh, Need Supply. So it, it makes up a bigger percentage of Total Kyle's business than if, for, need, for the Need business. Yeah. Let's talk products. So how, what percentage of, the, of your product are those exclusives, those exclusive brands? Our own product? Yeah. Um, it is north of 10% at this point. Okay, great. And has it, has it become more competitive as time goes on? I know you, you sell everything from like North Face, do I have that right? To like yep. off white, like there's quite the range. Is it more competitive to sell like off white? Everybody wants their exclusives. Everybody, there's so it's such a hot brand right now. Is it just it's competitive to even get the product? Yes. Yeah, talk to me about that. Well, I've always said we have two customers. We have the the customer that we sell to, and then the the brands that we buy from. So yep. it's important to be uh, conscious of the way you present product. Not only because of the customer, because of the brands, it's important to how you treat the partnership. It's important the store experience is important, not just for the all of our. I would say the the vast majority of our brands visit the stores to make sure that their products being represented the proper way and that the store is the proper type of store. Yeah, I mean it's really taken decades to get the brand portfolio that we have. I'm sure. I know you. I've noticed you. You carry some brands that are kind of hot right now in streetwear, like Off White, and along with that, like. How do you say it? Stussy? Stussy. Stussy. Have these brands always been a part of your mix? Is this a newer focus as it becomes more trendy? What's your take on streetwear? Streetwear, yes, it has always been a part of our mix. So as I mentioned earlier, we always mixed sort of a low to high. And so we would carry some of, at Neat Supply in the day, you might call 
um, young designer or advanced contemporary, we would, we would mix that with brands like Stussy or even like Vans and, 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 oh, yeah. and brands like that. So, um, And so I think what's interesting for us is we've always done that. And here we are today, you're seeing a lot of um, streetwear kind of collide with young luxury. Um, you know, Virgil's a great example of that. Yep. Um, and so we just kind of, that's what, that's our thing. That's what we've always done. And so for us, it feels right and it's a good time for us. Yeah. And have you always done kind of product drops? I know you do those in store. Is that new? So the product drops, we've done uh, partnerships. Um, we'll do exclusive product with certain partnerships. And a lot of that happens with brands like Nike and Adidas. Oh, neat. Yeah. we are moving to a more of a drop model for our uh, Totokayo brand and Need brand so that we'll have collections that drop on a monthly basis um, so that we can deliver more frequently, more timely uh, product that's more relevant um, and just keep, keep the excitement in the stores and online. Yeah. Okay, so. great. What's happening with Nike and Adidas? Are you just kind of like a drop spot, like when they come out with something new, you you and others or you're an exclusive sometimes you, it's exclusives or what's working they have a they have a tiered system of distribution so there are different levels and um we're at one of the higher levels if not the highest level so when they have new product at that higher tier they will allocate it to uh specific retailers probably less than 50 around the world and say okay you're getting this shoe on this day and this is how many you're getting yeah and then um it, that's called a drop. Yes. <laughs> or, or sometimes a riot. Yes. Do you have a lot of your current customers that come to that? I mean, I'm sure it's, that's also great for customer acquisition, getting new new customers into the store. Yeah, I think I think the challenge with particularly that heat product from Nike and Adidas right now is that is making sure that it gets into the hands of our customer mm-hmm. and not into the hands of resellers. So. We're very thoughtful about the way that we launch it online. We have lots of issues with bots that we have to fight fight off. And then in the store, the process of getting a ticket and lining up and that type of thing to make sure that, hey, these are actually fans. Yep. These are people who are customers. These are people who appreciate the product. They're not just trying to go and flip it on like a StockX or something like that. Yeah. Is that your responsibility or does Nike, do Nike and Adidas kind of? It's. A, I think it's a collaborative effort. Yep. They, they, I think they would agree with that philosophy. Talk about customer acquisition. We talk a lot about between multi-brand retailers, it seems like... Is this a business you know, podcast? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Google Google search. Yes. Um, I just feel like it becomes a competition of like who who's putting the most money in the, that kind of top spot and who's who's sponsoring... Yeah, who's tr- pumping enough m- more money into search. I, I think it's... I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up, but... I read a quote or a comment the other day that paid marketing, particularly digital paid marketing, is essentially the big guys out there, they figure out a way to essentially take all of your margin and just, the, and the competition just increases the, the price and the price and the price until you really just, you know, you have a, you have a customer acquisition cost that's more than your ROI, right? So yeah. That's what I've seen over the years as the channel comes out. It's really the first people there. It's affordable and you can really take advantage of it. Yep. And then it gets more expensive and more expensive and more expensive. And then there's really no value there. Yep. Unless uh, maybe you're direct to consumer because you have a bigger margin or 
or you're just burning money that you've raised, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is not our strategy. So um, I think uh, that's part of the reason that maintaining that relationship with the consumer, creating a community, that organic, that direct traffic is, is, is super important and make sure you balance that. Great. I think, I think the market is really changing. I think we have a great opportunity the way we're positioned to be a big, important, relevant player, in the, especially in the U.S. market. Definitely. Well, thank you. This has been fun. I think we covered it. Great. Next time, four seasons in Miami. <laughs> Chris has been at our summit, which is the rage. Yeah. Four Seasons Miami. See you then. (laughs) All right. When is that? May. May. Okay. Write it down. I'm I'm there. I'm there. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. All right, Jill. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Please head to the review section on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast to give us a rating and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.